chapter 15. And my leading question there, what was the ultimate cause of the destruction of Jerusalem? And if you've had a chance to look at the chapter, I'm wondering if you picked up what the real reason is. Glance down at verse 4. Robert, what do you understand from verse 4? Well, he he sure didn't like Hezekiah. And from uh, 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, uh, tell us why he didn't like Hezekiah. Hezekiah. Uh, Hezekiah, excuse me, Manasseh. Yeah, his son, Manasseh. All right, so uh, notice that Jeremiah is indicating that the reason he is going to displace Jerusalem and Judah is because of Manasseh and what he did in Jerusalem. Now keep your finger there in chapter 15 and let's go back to a couple other passages in 2 Kings. And we'll begin with 2 Kings 23:26 And whenever someone has it if you would like to read it just go ahead 2 Kings 23:26 However the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath with which his anger burned against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him Thank you, Ben. Uh, now, verse 24, which will tell you who the king is at the time that statement is made. Do you notice that? So Josiah is king and Manasseh is not, and yet God says that his great wrath against the nation is going to be based upon the provocations that Manasseh provoked him with. Similar to the reference there in Jeremiah 15, 4, for what he did in Jerusalem. A writer of Kings said provocations. So let's take a look at chapter 24 of 2 Kings. Just turn the page over. And verses 3 and 4. And Art, would you read uh, chapter 24, verses 3 and 4 for us, if you have it? Verses 3 and 4. Surely these things happened to Judah according to the Lord's command, in order to remove them from his presence because of the sins of Manasseh and all he had done, including the shedding of innocent blood. For he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord was not willing to forgive. Now, verse 1 of this chapter, uh, what king is on the throne when this statement is made? Anyone notice that? Jehoiakim. Then Jehoiakim comes after Josiah, 
uh, with the exception of a few months when Josiah's uh, youngest son, Jehoahaz, or Shalom, reigns and is unseated by Necho. So we've moved on to the same repeated accusation from the days of Josiah to the days of Jehoiakim to the days of Jeremiah, which may suggest that Jeremiah's comment here is also coincident with the days of Jehoiakim, or conceivably later. Uh, We can't date Jeremiah 15 any more precisely than make these allusions to these other passages. However, you will notice uh, that it's not because of the sins of Jehoiakim per se, nor is it because of the sins of Jehoahaz or Shalom per se, nor is it even because of the sins of Jehoiakim or Zedekiah per se. The judgment that comes upon Judah and Jerusalem comes because of the sins of Manasseh. Now, in saying that, uh, we have to realize that it's not just what Manasseh himself did. It's what Jerusalem and Judah began to do in imitation or following his lead, or he's doing what the other corrupt sinners of this generation are doing. In other words, the Lord has taken measure of a habit of iniquity, a disposition of iniquity, an ongoing iniquitous character, and he is bringing his wrath to bear upon the nation because of this character of iniquity which is endemic, that it's almost inbred into Judah and Jerusalem. Well, what is it that Manasseh did? Let's go back. Let's keep our finger in in, uh, Jeremiah 15. Let's turn back to 2 Kings uh, 21. And the first thing that we want to note about 2 Kings chapter 21 is what it says in the first verse. Ben, your head went up. Ben to burn. In the first verse, was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. Did any other king of Israel or Judah reign as long as Manasseh reigned as king of Judah? This is the longest reign of any monarch in the history of the northern or the southern kingdom. Now, it dovetails with my comment about the pattern or embedded disposition. In other words, the habit that has been created from the top down, from the royal throne on down, trickling into the population, namely the leadership of Manasseh in sinful and wretched, vile disobedience to the word of God. And the nation of Judah... (coughs) Uh, follows in his train. They 
follow his lead. So when Jeremiah and when the writer of Kings in these other passages says it's for the sins of Manasseh, it's not just for Manasseh alone. It's because he takes the lead and creates this pattern of exemplary depravity. And God holds the nation accountable for that because they cooperate with it. They are inclined uh, to go along with it. In other words, they like the sins that Manasseh likes. And Manasseh loves these vile sins. They like these vile sins. So that the habit or the disposition has come into the character of the nation. We're not saying that there aren't some believers left. There are some, but definitely the majority is following this pattern of uh, sinful dissipation. So Manasseh reigns 55 years, and if you're interested, the dates are there in your outline from 697 to 642 B.C. The first 11 years, you'll notice when Ben read that verse out loud, he said he was 12 years old. How could he reign when he was 12 years old? Well, he actually is reigning as a co-regent with his father Hezekiah. His father had become old and so in transition to Manasseh succeeding him, uh, there was a co-regency established so that by the time he became sole king of Judah, he was about 22 or 23 years old. How do I know that? We know that from the overlapping chronologies of the reigns of the kings of Israel and Judah, a chronology which has been worked out by several scholars. Perhaps the most credible one is a fellow named Edwin Teal who was a a very fine Seventh-day Adventist historian, and he worked out the overlapping paradigms of the reigns of the kings of Judah and and Israel in order to demonstrate the inerrancy and the accuracy of the Word of God, the accuracy of the historical record in Kings and Chronicles. All right. So he reigns the longest and, of course, has the longest period to uh, do moral damage to the fabric of the nation from his throne. Now, what are some of the things that he did do? Let's take a look at verse 3 there in uh, chapter 21. And if uh, anybody has got their eye on it, please uh, go ahead and read it for us. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. He raised up altars for Baal. He made a wood, wooden image as Ahab king of Israel had done. And he worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. All right, now, one of the things that that verse tells you is that he changed course. What course did he change, Ben? Better off. course did he change? His father was going to, towards godly way, and then he turned back. And Very good. Godly pattern of his father's devotion. Hezekiah was a very uh, godly king. He was devout and a very close friend of the prophet Isaiah. And Manasseh, unlike his father, changes course and rebels. He goes the other way. Notice that he builds up the high places that his father had torn down. What are these high places? Maki, you're still on the floor. I'll give you a chance to clear your throat. What are these high places? Uh, the, the place that Jeroboam started. There's some truth to that, okay. But why do they call them high places? 
What's going on there? Oh, uh, temple prostitute? Pardon? Temple prostitute? No. Yeah, sacred prostitution. Yeah, so they, why do they get up on these high places? Um, I do not know. <laughs> they think they're getting closer to the gods. Uh, they'll also plant little groves around for the sake of privacy. After all, if you're going to have sacred prostitution, you better have some privacy, right? <clears throat> or something like that. Anyway, uh, these are shrines devoted to the cult of Baal and other gods. Uh, what other gods are mentioned here? Uh, Baal is mentioned there. What was that wooden pole? Ben, Ben, or uh, what was that wooden pole? An Asherah. An Asherah. What's the Asherah? The Canaanite goddess of the, the gods of the Assyrians. Mm-hmm. Can be related to the... The second one. The Asherah, Canaanite goddess. Um, who is she? Mary Lou, who is she? No, I'm just a... Terry Lou. Uh, goddess of fertility? Yes. She goes along with whom? Ben to her? Bill. Yeah, she's consort. She's Bale's wife. So <clears throat> the wooden pole is a symbol of her image. And notice that she's placed in this verse alongside of Baal because the two of them go together. <clears throat> now, the other thing that Ben Vanderhoff was talking about was the Assyrian. What, what were you, uh, what was your little footnote telling you there, Ben? That's for the next one. Which is what? Uh, host of heaven. The host of heaven. Meaning what? Meaning the stars and the moon. Very good. The, the astral deities, exactly. Which could be Assyrian, but could also be Canaanite. In other words, Manasseh is an ecumenist. He's very ecumenical. He wants to make sure he gets all the gods involved in this, uh, whether they're fertility gods, whether they're astral deities. Uh, he's going to bring that uh, that uh, old-time religion, that old-time Canaanite religion, back to Judah. <clears throat> all right, so <clears throat> he is a uh, pro-idolatrous king, he is an anti-God or Lord King. He is changing the whole climate of uh, the culture of Judah by what he's doing, leading by example and perverting the worship of the Lord. Verse 4, what does he do in the temple? Mary Lou, what does he do in the temple? Go ahead, Crowd. Uh, he built an altar. Even he builds idol altars in the temple of the Lord, doesn't he? <clears throat> so he, he, nothing stops him. Nothing sacred to this guy. He, he, away with it all. Desecrate the whole thing. All right. So <clears throat> he's a thorough idolater, and he leads the nation into a kind of thorough idolatry. Which is the reason that Josiah, when he reforms, when he cleans out the idols, is reversing the policy of Manasseh, uh, ultimately, his grandfather. All right. Now, he also does something else. Verse 6. Marge, what's he doing in verse 6? He says he made his son pass through the fire, practice witchcraft. Let's start with the first one there. He made his sons pass through the fire. Doing What's that mean? 
to kind of uh, offering their children for a sacrifice? Yeah. Burned them up on the altar. He sacrificed his children. He, cre- he committed infanticide, murdered his children by burning them. <clears throat> well, what kind of deity would want that? Are there ancient gods that uh, loved child sacrifice? Art? Yes. What were their names? I don't know. Ben? Moloch was one. Chemosh, Chemosh, Moloch and Chemosh, the god of the Moabites and the Ammonites. All right, they were both gods that uh, demanded or required living sacrifice, particularly the sacrifice of small children. And Manasseh uh, sacrifices his own sons in the fire. Finally, verse 9 so we got a whole catalog here, a whole litany of this depravity of Manasseh. Finally, in verse 9, what's said about him there? Ben? He tells them to be more wicked than the nations God has sent them to destroy. More wicked who? The Canaanites Canaanite themselves, correct. Remember that God had told children of Israel to cast out the Canaanites... Because of their abominable wickedness, that was in the days of Joshua. They didn't do what God told them. They left pockets of them, and that, of course, seduced them. But nonetheless, that was pretty rank evil in its own time. And here's Manasseh. He's out-eviling the evil Canaanites. He's more wretchedly depraved and wicked than they are. This is pretty abominable stuff. This man's life is despicable. So despicable that he's worse than the pagans that the children of Israel defeated and ejected, though they didn't eject them all, when they conquered the land of Palestine. All right. So the portrait of Manasseh, which Jeremiah is reflecting upon, is a portrait in which his wickedness comes to comes due. The justice due for his sins has come. His accountability is up. He's been dead for almost 40 years when Jeremiah or more when Jeremiah makes this statement. Nonetheless, God says, I have not settled accounts with Judah for the sin of Manasseh. You allowed him to do this. Some of you are still alive who let him get away with this, and some of you are still alive who did what he did. The day of reckoning is here. Thus far, and judgment, you're not going to go any further because they're going to bring you to account. Now, his career is listed here in 2 Kings 21, as we've just noted, it's also listed in Second Chronicles chapter 33. Now, I suggested last week that you might want to read those two accounts and see if you noted any difference. And who did their homework? I'll bet you you did, Ben. <laughs> Thank you very much for doing your homework. I appreciate that very much. Um, 
What difference did you notice in the two records of his career? In Chronicles, he is shown as a man who came to repentance. Very good. The, the, he undid what he had done. He undo what he, he had done. All right, so let's take a look at Second Chronicles just for a moment. And let's observe that the chronicler, we'll call him the chronicler, the author of Chronicles. There's nothing wrong with using that term uh, for the author. He's unknown to us, so we'll call him the chronicler. The chronicler uh, has a uh, description of Manasseh's repentance in verses 11 to 13 and 18 to 19 of this 33rd chapter of Chronicles. Now, how did this repentance come about, Ben? What was the factor that kind of turned Manasseh's life around? The king of Assyria came and uh, removed him from Very good. He was captured by the king of Assyria. He was carried off to imprisonment. And while he was in that imprisonment, he called upon the Lord and asked for forgiveness, which the Lord granted. All right, so that in verse uh, 18 and 19, uh, it talks about how he had uh, tried to undo what he had done, as uh, Ben pointed out. He tries to remove the Asherah and the idols that he had established, but too little too late. In other words, the impact of what he had done could not be undone by simply removing uh, some of the shrines and the groves. Well, uh, as a footnote here, the difference in the two accounts leads some scholars to suggest that the chronicler, who's writing long after the incident, has massaged and redeemed Manasseh in order to make him look a little bit sanitary, hygienic. He's cleaned him up. Now, why would they, uh, the scholars think that? Why would they suggest that uh, Manasseh has been cleaned up by the writer of the Chronicles? The Second Kings does not mention it. As Ben pointed out, when you read the two accounts, 2 Kings 21, 2 Chronicles 33, you find nothing in 2 Kings 21 about this repentance or about his capture, right, Ben? There's no mention of the king of Assyria capturing him, taking him off to prison. So why would these, why would these scholars suggest, uh, Scott? It just also fits with what Chronicles doesn't mention the sin of Bathsheba, so they might say, well, it doesn't mention that sin at all. Well, Manasseh was so bad, they got to mention his sin that they got to clean him up as much as they can. Why is it even there in the first place? Now, the kings doesn't say anything about it, so who's telling the truth? Both of them are telling the truth, but these scholars don't think so. Why do these scholars think that the chronicler is telling a hygienic or sanitized version of the story? Because the chronicler has an agenda. He's a spinmeister. He's a member of the mainstream media. He can take any story and spin it to tell you what he wants you to believe out of it. And what he wants you to believe out of the stories that he tells in the book of Chronicles is that every king of Judah 
is a good guy. He pays very little attention to the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel. He chronicles the history of the kings of the southern kingdom, kingdom of Judah. And so he's writing in order to sanitize the whole Davidic monarchy. Consequently, Manasseh, whom he can't scrub completely clean, as Scott has said, has to be redeemed somehow. And so he invents this story about being carried off to Assyria in captivity, repenting, coming back, and trying to clean up his act. But it's all a fairy tale. It's all a fabrication. It's all an invention. It's all a part of what's called a tendentious theological uh, uh, spin. He wants to spin the theology of the Davidic monarchs to make them look good. But it's not true. And therefore, the, the record in Kings is the more accurate account. Chronicles has come after the writer of Kings and tried to clean up the bad press that Manasseh got. Robert? It seems to me that in the uh, New Testament, you've got parallel passages that add details that the other one doesn't. I mean, if you're going to be consistent, you've got to uh, look at that askance, too. Oh, yes. Seminar folks, they've got all kinds of explanations for that type of thing. In other words, wherever you've got tension or contradiction, there's always some hidden agenda underneath it for the liberal scholar, the higher critical scholar. So uh, I'm just introducing you here to a little <laughs> a little inside uh, story about how the higher critic or the liberals think about these things. Uh, no, uh, as Scott said, both are true. Uh, we're getting a fuller version of Manasseh's life when we put Kings and Chronicles together. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not sympathizing with this critical stuff. I'm just wanting to explain it to you so that you're aware of it and the fact that it often creeps up out of Reformed seminaries, so that Reformed seminaries will teach that there's this tendentious angle in the chronicler, particularly because he's trying to write a theological reconstruction of the Davidic monarchy. Now, when you read a Reformed commentator who says that, you get your antenna up, okay? And you realize that what you're reading is a variety of liberal higher criticism. That's the game that's underneath the surface if that's in the, if that's in the commentary you're reading about. And it's really very difficult these days to find any commentary on Chronicles that doesn't believe that, unfortunately. So you have to keep your antenna up entirely. Or come to Northwest Theological Seminary. We'll teach you how to handle that kind of stuff. So you won't have to worry about those liberal commentaries. You can take them on. All right. Any questions about any of that? Art? You're fired up. I can see. Okay. No, no I'm actually not. But uh, so it's not known whether Manasseh ended his life worshiping false gods or not? No, he ended his life, as the chronicler tells us, not worshiping false gods. He did clean up his act though I don't think he had a lot of time to do it. So the chronicler uh, is correct in saying that in his imprisonment, he did turn to the Lord. And he came back in order to purge the idolatry, some of the idolatry that he had started. Now, he couldn't get rid of all of it because it was ingrained into the populace. But nonetheless, he himself did repent of it. Okay? 
All right, now, the question that uh, Ben pointed out, namely that the king of Assyria captures him, raises the issue as to whether or not there's any mention of Manasseh in the Assyrian Chronicles. And yes, there is. In fact, he's mentioned twice in the Assyrian Chronicles. And you have the citations there in your outline. He is mentioned in the ANET. Your footnote tells you what that is, ancient Near Eastern text relating to the Old Testament. This is a marvelous collection of English translations of Egyptian, Assyrian, Babylonian, Persian documents, which have been discovered by archaeologists up until the 1950s. So about 100 years worth of uh, archaeological excavation and uh, translation of these documents in one thick, fat volume called ANET, Ancient Near Eastern Texts. All right, Manasseh's name is listed in the Chronicles of Esarhaddon, who is king of Assyria from 681 to 669, and he's also mentioned in the Chronicles of Assurbanipal II, who is king of Assyria from 668 to about 631. But that's all. His name is mentioned. Nothing is said about him being captured. Nothing is said about him being a servant of the Lord and repenting of his idolatry. In other words, the Assyrian Chronicle doesn't help us understand anything more about Manasseh than his name and that the Assyrians were aware of it. So insofar as the name is in the Assyrian documents, we know that the Assyrian king had contact. Some two Assyrian kings had some contact with Manasseh. Who then captured him? Was it Esarhaddon or was it Assurbanipal II? We don't know. They don't say. But at least the archaeological record tells us that what the chronicler says is historically accurate insofar as he had contact with the kings of Assyria. No more than that can we say from the archaeological record, but we can at least say that. So in other words, the chronicler isn't blowing smoke when he mentions the king of Assyria connected to Manasseh. It verifies the credibility of that notice. Any questions? Go ahead, Art. At this time, is the northern kingdom gone? 722 B.C. It's been gone for 50 years. Yeah. Babylonians have not yet conquered. No, Babylonians have not yet conquered Assyria. That will happen in what year, Marge? When will the Babylonians conquer? When will Nebuchadnezzar conquer Nineveh? When will Nahum's prophecy that Nineveh will be destroyed, when was it fulfilled? You read the book of Nahum. Here you are. You're in your Bible devotions. You come to the book of Nahum and, you know, when did this happen? You ought to know. You ought to know. You're students of the Bible, aren't you? You ought to know. Well, when did this happen? 9,000 B.C.? 13 A.D.? When did it happen? 700, 700 B.C. 612 B.C. 612 B.C. Nineveh falls to Nebuchadnezzar and to Nabopolassar and his son Nebuchadnezzar, as well as to a coalition of the Medes. All right, so... Uh, <clears throat> You know, you know 1776, you know 1863, I hope, you know 1945, you understand these hinge point dates in history. 612 B.C. is a hinge point date in history. It's right in your Bible. 
It's being discussed in your Bible. Nahum talks about it. So does Zephaniah. It turns the whole course of history because the Babylonians come, the Assyrians are gone. And when the Assyrians are gone, Nico comes up out of Egypt and kills Josiah. So it's in your Bible some more. Now, true, that's three years later, but nonetheless, it's in your Bible. Your Bible is about events that can be dated, many of them. The dates are important. You've got a date that is important. You've got anniversary dates that are important. You've got birthday dates that are important. You've got grandkids' dates that are birthdays that are important. Boy, you better believe those are important dates. Okay, brothers and sisters, I'm uh, stirring you up to good works. A few biblical dates. 586 B.C. is another turning point. All right. I'm teasing you a little bit, but at any rate. Any other questions about uh, uh, Manasseh's background? All right. Coming back then to Jeremiah. First, yes, Scott. With Ahab, he had an evil wife. Here, it doesn't mention anything about a spouse. He's just, he's, he's a man. Is there anything going on with, with particular kings mentioned in contrast to others in their group who are leading them to evil? He's wicked than Ahab and Jezebel. Yes, he is. Um, no, there's nothing about uh, a spouse uh, that's recorded. That doesn't mean there there wasn't a spouse. But if he's involved in worship of Baal, uh, you know, the sexual urge is involved in the sacred prostitution, so he doesn't need a wife. But he could be sacrificing up those children. <coughs> I'm sorry. Yes, I take that back. Yeah, the fact that he had sons is obviously indicative that he has a wife. Yes, right. But she's not named. In either uh, in either uh, Chronicles or Kings. Did I miss something? Where'd you see it, Ben? Well, I stand son, when his son takes the throne, in, where is that? When Ammon takes his mother's name was Nehushtan. Nehushtan. Oh, okay. So we do have a wife's name. Thank you. All right, back to Jeremiah 15. And the language of that first verse, particularly the language, send them away. I'm suggesting that this language is a reverse exodus. That it's the language of turning back the exodus from Egypt to send Judah back to exile in a strange land and bondage in that exile in a strange land. And that helps Understand why Moses is listed in this verse because obviously he's an Exodus figure. And what Moses brought, an Exodus out of bondage, out of exile in a strange land, is going to be turned back. It's going to be reversed. 
But that doesn't explain why Samuel was here. So we ask the question, why does God say Moses and Samuel? Art? Well, it could be because Samuel did enter the promised land. And so that is in the promised land. You want to pull that? Okay, scratch that. Okay. All right, you see what I'm asking you to do? I'm asking you to think why these two individuals in this verse. You, 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 can, you can understand Moses, why? Good. At what at what incident did he do that, Ben? Um, right after the golden calf. After the golden calf, Moses stands in the breach. In fact, it says he stood before the Lord, and the Lord passed by him, and the Lord promises to spare Israel. So that's a that's what's referred to in Exodus thirty three twenty one, and also uh, duplicated in Psalm one hundred six twenty three. But you still haven't answered the question, why Moses and Samuel in Jeremiah 15? He is a prophet. Good. Good. That's not telling me something about what's going on. We've actually got more than two names in this chapter. What's the other name that we've got? We got Samuel and verse four. Who's the other name, Maki? Verse four. Verse four of of chapter fifteen. Manasseh and Hezekiah. Manasseh. Moses, Samuel, Manasseh. What's the key to the pattern here? Moses, the Exodus. Okay? Got that one. Samuel, Philistines. Ah. How so, Scott? Saul. He is the initiator of the kingdom, isn't he? Because he anoints the first kings and particularly anoints the Davidite. Yes, the first son of Jesse, the first, the, the, the seventh son of Jesse, actually the uh, first uh, king after God's own heart. In other words, it is the anointing of the Davidic dynasty, of which Manasseh is a descendant, correct? And with Manasseh, what is coming to an end? Yes, the kingdom is coming to an end. The 
dynasty of David is coming to an end, isn't it? Zedekiah is a descendant of David, as Manasseh is a descendant of David, as Manasseh's son Ammon is a descendant of David, as Manasseh's son, as, as Ammon's son Josiah is a descendant of David, as Shalom or Jehoahaz is a descendant of David, as Jehoiakim is a descendant of David, as Jehoiakim is a descendant of David, and Zedekiah is a descendant of David, and who is a descendant of David after Zedekiah dies and sits on the throne of Jerusalem? Ben? There is none. Manasseh represents the curse on the Davidic line and also the curse on what else? What does he desecrate? Curse on the city and the temple. All right, notice the pattern. <clears throat> Moses and the Exodus, Samuel and the kingdom of the Davidites. What Davidites, I mean the Davidic dynasties, the sons of David who successively sit on the throne in Judah. Okay? <clears throat> Manasseh, Jerusalem, and the temple for all the innocent blood that he shed in Jerusalem. Notice verse 4 of Jeremiah 15, for what he did in Jerusalem. All right, now, put it all together. Under the retrospective redemptive historical narrative, Moses points to the Exodus. That's the, that's the uh, fill in the blank after the arrow after Moses in that uh, section. Samuel, the arrow points to the institution of the monarchy or the kingdom and the beginning of the Davidic dynasty. Manasseh, the arrow points to Jerusalem and the temple. Now, what's going to happen? We've already pointed out that in verse 1, that language, send them away, is a reverse exodus pattern. So, in the prospective, redemptive, historical, narrative reversal, the reverse exodus is going to turn into exile and bondage. The reverse of the kingdom and the Davidides is going to turn into no Davidic king and no kingdom of Israel hyphen Judah. The reverse of the Jerusalem temple pattern is no temple in a destroyed or raised city of Jerusalem 586 B.C. All right, once again, retrospective, redemptive, historical narrative, Exodus, monarchy or kingdom, and the Davidic kings. Manasseh, Jerusalem, and the temple. Prospective, redemptive, historical narrative reversal, reverse Exodus, followed by, after the second arrow, exile and bondage. Reverse Kingdom and Davidides. And after the second arrow, no Davidic king and no kingdom 
of Israel, Judah. Third reverse, first arrow after the first arrow, Jerusalem and the temple. After the second arrow, no temple in a raised Jerusalem, 586 B.C. These three names in this chapter are redemptive historical paradigm shifts. And they're going to be reversed. That's the reason they're there. God is saying, I'm going to reverse the whole past history of redemption from Moses to Samuel and the kings, from Moses and the Exodus, Samuel and the kings, and Manasseh and Jerusalem in the temple. I'm going to turn it all around. I'm going to undo what I did because of your abominable sin. End of the story. Jerusalem in smoke, flames, ashes, bloody death, corpses heaped on corpses. End of the story. Gloom and doom. That's it. Close the book. No, the eschatology is here. There's an eschatological, redemptive, historical, narrative, reversal of the reversal. We're going to have a new exodus in Christ Jesus. Doesn't he go down into Egypt? Doesn't Jesus come up out of Egypt? Doesn't Jesus go through the waters? Doesn't Jesus go into the wilderness? Doesn't Jesus go up onto a mountaintop and sit down with the twelve and teach them the law of the kingdom of heaven? Doesn't Jesus relive the exodus himself? And thereby bring us a new and perfected exodus. The return from the Babylonian captivity is not the eschatological new exodus. Can't be because it's a failure. They come back in their own disobedience. It doesn't present a full orbed permanent state of freedom and liberty. Because they're sold into bondage to the Greeks, sold into bondage to the Syrians, sold into bondage to the Egyptians, sold into bondage to the Romans. No permanent exodus even at the return from exile. The only exodus which is permanently eschatological is the exodus that Christ Jesus brings. And it has nothing to do with political liberation. It has everything to do with the liberation of the soul from the chief tyrant and prince of darkness and ruler of bondage, namely Satan himself. The Exodus itself then, under the days of Moses, is a portrait in advance of the greater liberation that must come to those who are born and conceived in sin. It's not really ultimately about getting out of Egypt. It's ultimately about getting out of sin. 
And if you're just going to remember it as a tradition of your national heritage, you've missed the point. So let's not have any of those Passover satyrs on Monday, Thursday in Protestant churches. Please. If you want to have them in in an evening service and have them talk about it in a Sunday school, okay. But let's not turn a whole uh, Monday, Thursday communion service into a Passover Seder. We're not going back there. With all of my love and affection for converted Jews for Jesus. I love many of them. I've heard them. I've embraced them. But we're not going to go back to the Passover. We're going on to the banquet of the married supper of the Lamb. Okay. Now, what else, what else is new eschatologically here? The second line there is we have a new David in Christ Jesus with a new kingdom which is equal to the kingdom of heaven. That's exactly what he said when he preached his first sermon. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If I, by the finger of God, cast out Satan, then you know the kingdom of heaven has come in your midst. A political kingdom? An earthly kingdom? A kingdom in which we've got another David with a sword on the throne? It's not what he's talking about, is it? It's a kingdom which is greater than any kingdom of this world because it is not any kingdom of this world. And finally, the other eschatological redemptive historical narrative reversal of the reversal is Jerusalem. A new Jerusalem in Christ Jesus. Isn't that what the writer of the Hebrews tells you? You have been called to the heavenly Jerusalem, Hebrews 12, 22. Because Jesus has opened the gate to that city for you, and he's there to welcome you with open arms. A city not of this world, a city whose builder and maker is God, Christ, the pioneer and perfecter of that pilgrim way, opening the door to the gates of the heavenly Jerusalem for you. And a new temple in that Heavenly Jerusalem, a new temple, which is the temple of the body of the risen Lord Jesus. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up, John 2.19. The temple is not an earthly structure. The temple was never intended, even in Solomon's day, to be an end in itself. The temple was to direct your eyes to heaven and to that eternal tabernacle made without hands, eternal in the heavens. The living temple, who is the living, risen Lord Jesus Christ. You want to come to the temple of the Lord? You want to come to the place where God meets man as he met him in the temple? You come to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's where he meets you, in that heavenly Jerusalem. The gates of that four-square city. So there is a hope of an eschatological new exodus. New David. New Jerusalem. New temple. 
And those new things are permanent, eternal, absolute, and will never pass away. That's what's behind these four, these three names, ultimately. These transition points in the history of redemption being brought to bear upon Jeremiah's situation here, which we'll talk about when we come back from our little five-minute break. Okay, well, um, quickly over some of these uh, other points on page two, because I do want to take some time to look at the uh, elements in the outline at the bottom of the page, that is below uh, verses 20 and 21. But I don't want to uh, give short shrift to this entirely. In verses 2 to 3, you will notice that there's a pattern there. Each verse has a pattern of fours. Now, it's somewhat unusual because in general, we get a rule of threes, which in fact is what we get in verse 5. So uh, normally, the Semitic paradigm is a rule of threes. But here we have a rule of fours as if... Jeremiah is uh, taking the pains to make an additional emphatic statement. What about the rule of threes? What about the three? What what threes are there in verse 5? Do you see them? Loretta's not here tonight. She's our expert on this uh, uh, type of thing. Scott, what do you see there? I see a who, who, and who. There was a question following. Okay. And uh, so these are questions. These are uh, interrogatives. Uh, uh, what kind of interrogatives are they? Um, what, yeah, question. Um, who's going who's gonna to mourn for you? Who's going to do this for you? Who's going to answer? Nobody. So what kind of questions are they? Uh, rhetorical. They're rhetorical questions. These are three rhetorical questions. Now notice, God is speaking here in verse 5. <clears throat> Verse 6 tells you that, okay, declares the Lord. So the point here is that God himself is lamenting, lamenting for the nation. He's asking the question rhetorically, but it reflects upon his own spirit of, shall we say, grief and lamentation for the nation. Now, understand this is a kind of anthropomorphic expression, but at the same time, God is entering into that grief, which the prophet Jeremiah will mirror. He will lament over the city. We've already noted places where his eyes run down with tears. And he writes a book called Lamentations. So the mirror reflection between God himself as one who laments here in this fifth verse and Jeremiah who will reflect it. He will mirror it. He will, in fact, identify with it as a as one who laments with lamentation. Skipping down to verse eight, notice the uh, mention of widows being more numerous than the sand of the seas. The widow <clears throat> is left. Childless here. The widow is left bereft of children. Notice verse 7. War 
makes widows. Husbands go off to war, they don't come back. Widows remain. Sons go off to war, they don't come back. Mothers remain. So this uh, emphasis upon the widows being more numerous is underscoring the fact that the children are going to be wasted even as the fathers and husbands are wasted in the uh, war and siege against Jerusalem. Now this raises the question of the date of this chapter. What's he talking about when widows are going to become more numerous than the sands of the sea? Obviously he's talking about a critical juncture in uh, Jerusalem's destruction. Is it the uh, second siege of 597 when Nebuchadnezzar carries away Jehoiakim and Ezekiel? Or is it the final siege of 586 when he destroys the city and carries away uh, Zedekiah and the rest of uh, the nation of Judah and Jerusalem? It's impossible to tell However, the uh, image of this uh, of these numerous widows suggests a real critical uh, date. So one of those dates would be appropriate. More than that, we can't say. Now, this interesting verse nine, she who bore seven sons pines away. Once again, this is a reflection upon the judgment that is coming upon the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Judah. Why the mother of seven sons, she who bore seven sons, pining away? What's the significance of seven sons? All right, well, we've got to turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 2 for a minute in order to understand what the significance of this figure is. 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 5. And when you find that chapter, you'll notice that in most of your modern versions, you have it indented and uh, written uh, down your page in uh, even lines, which tells you what about it in the original Hebrew. Do you know what that means when they indent it and make it uh, even like that? Ben, you had your head up a minute. It's poetry. It is poetry. Yes, it is poetry. And whose poem is this, Ben? This is Hannah's poem. Okay, Very significant to some other poem. Similar to another poem in the Bible. I heard it. Mary's Magnificat. Yes, the Magnificat of the Virgin Mary in Luke chapter 1. Okay. All right. So, notice verse 5. Hannah, of course, was barren. And then she conceived. And in verse 5, she says, those who were full, hire themselves out for bread. Those who were hungry, cease to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven. Now, Hannah is saying this poem. She's uttering this song. It's actually a poetic song. She's saying this song in what frame of mind? He's ecstatic. She's joyful. Yes, you see, so the image of the one who gives birth to seven, the barren one, gives, is, is a, an indication of the ecstatic joy that she's having children. She was barren. Now she's having children. And she would have sevenfold over the abundance of these children as a and an added uh, superabundance of joy. So the image here 
of bearing seven is an image of joy. Now, turn back just one page in your Bible, probably to the 15th verse of the fourth chapter of the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 4, verse 15. The women of the city of Bethlehem, addressing Naomi, after Boaz and Ruth conceive. What does she say? What do they say to Naomi? May this child who's going to be born be a restorer of life, sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Again, the image of seven sons being an indication of security, contentment, joy, and even in this verse, love. Now, the passage from Exodus 2.16 is about Jethro's seven daughters. Jethro, who is Moses' father-in-law that he had seven daughters as if an expression of joy. I'm not so sure seven teenage daughters would be an expression of joy, but nonetheless, any daughter is an expression of joy. Fathers dote on daughters. I shouldn't admit that, but... Okay. So this, back to uh, Jeremiah 15, 9... This image of um, the one who bore seven sons pining away is a reverse of that joyful ecstasy. She's pining away because <clears throat> they're dead. The destruction has come. They're, they're gone. They've been destroyed. Verse 10. Keeping in line with the mother image that we've uh, looked at, In widows in verse 8 and uh, the mother who bears 7 in verse 9. Here we have a reverse mother motif. There's no joy here. Woe to me and to my mother. So the pattern of this reverse side of motherhood is now lamentably coming to bear upon this nation which is under the curse of destruction. I'm going to skip to verse 14. You can figure out my note on 13, I think, if you look up the passage. Notice that God is speaking again here in this section, and he will cause your enemies to bring you into a land that you do not know. This uh, land mentioned here is once again... More of that reverse exodus motif. I'm going to bring you out of the promised land. I'm going to bring you out in another exodus to a foreign land. I'm going to bring you into bondage and exile in a land that you do not know. Now in verse 15, Jeremiah speaks, and he will speak through verse 18. And here he talks about his enemies and those that persecute him. He asks God to take vengeance on them. We've seen this pattern in Jeremiah before. This is an identification mirror, namely that Jeremiah's enemies are God's enemies and vice versa. God's enemies are Jeremiah's enemies. The prophet then stands not vindictively in the pattern of, you know, deal with those who are persecuting me, O Lord, he is, he is standing in God himself, 
who will judge his own enemies and the enemies of his servants, the enemies of those who are identified with him, who are his mirror spokesmen, his mirror servants. Verse 16, in which he says that he ate the words of God, is parallel to Ezekiel 1, where Ezekiel eats the words of the scroll of the Lord, and he says that they were sweet to his taste. The word of God was sweet to the taste of those that devoured it, that ate it up, that gobbled it up. If you don't, then God will send you the famine of the hearing of the word. If you're not eager to gobble up and eat up the word of God, then he'll take it from you. He'll give it to those who are hungry for it. If you're not desirous of feasting upon the word of God and finding the taste of it sweet, because the grace of Christ, God in Christ, by the Spirit, is always sweet to the wretched sinner. If you don't find it that way, if the church in America doesn't find it that way, God will take it away. You won't play games with God and how you stand before his word. This is critical. The world that we are living in is not the same world that you and I were born into. It is a very different world. The only thing that is going to stand us instead in this world is the word of God. And if we do not feast upon it, if we do not delight in it as sweet, sweeter than honey, because the living word of God, Christ himself, is the sweetest of all to us. If we don't, it's going to be taken from us. It's as simple as that. If you don't love it, God will remove it. And so, even in the Reformed Church, we see this lackadaisical indifference to the Word of God. We see this hesitancy to even read it or understand it. We see no passion to learn it and to dig into it as if we are secure and safe. And we can say, the temple of the OPC, the temple of the OPC, the temple of the OPC is here. Or the temple of our reformed faith, the temple of our reformed, or the temple of our Christian tradition, the temple of, we are safe. Not if you're not digging or reading or tasting the sweet word of God. In the crucial days for the church, she must be anchored in the word of God. For there are others who are anchored in their word. And they are militantly passionate. Militantly passionate.
Now in verse 18, I'm sorry, in verse 17, the inversion. Notice he says he did not sit in the circle of the merrymakers. He sat alone. Jeremiah was a loner. Not a loner in the sense of being antisocial. He was a loner in the sense that his culture had abandoned him. He was counterculture because the culture had moved beyond him. He was out of step with the narrative of the culture of his day. It was a culture of self-adulation. We've seen this in Manasseh. How do you get to be a uh, dominator of idolatry, leading your nation into sin so uh, wretched that you even burn up your children? How do you do that? Is that if you're in love with yourself, if you've got some kind of self-adulation paradigm? You're a poster boy. You're, you're, you're a Jerusalem idol. You're a, you're a Judah idol. And with that goes vanity, the conceit of a vain self-consciousness, arrogance, and egomania. And along with that goes licentiousness, because, of course, there's no law to bind you. You're not restrained by any of the customs or uh, restraints of the general civilized culture. You can explore all kinds of kinky things because you're above it all. You're the great poster boy and girl generation. And then the corruption. The corruption that comes out of the licentiousness because wherever you have licentious lifestyle, you have corruption to promote it and preserve it. And after that, the base tyranny for those who won't cooperate with you, for those who won't march to your agenda, then you will force them to. If you have to enslave them, you will dominate them. You will tell them that you are the elite master and they are your slaves. That's what you will do when you control the narrative of the culture. Jeremiah sat alone. He would not march in that cultural paradigm. And so he was persecuted for it. And he began to whine about it. He even says in verse 18 that God is a deceptive stream. Remember what he had said in chapter 213. In chapter 2, verse 13, he had said that the Lord was the fountain of living waters. And now he is a dry wash. He's a dry wadi. That's what he's calling God. So that in verse 19, when God answers Jeremiah, God says, If you repent, restore is too weak. The Hebrew word is shuv, which means to repent. If you repent... Then I will restore you, and before me you will stand. God is calling Jeremiah to repent of his charge that God has deceived him. Jeremiah, I have not deceived you. And that's the point of the bottom of your outline. Jeremiah's complaint lined up with God's reply, lined up with Jeremiah's lament, lined up with God's reply. What's going on in the language of this back and forth dialogue between the prophet and God? What's God doing in order to underscore or enforce 
or penetrate the demand for repentance into the soul of Jeremiah and get Jeremiah off being stuck on himself. Jeremiah, you've got to get off of this self-pity. This pity party is not what you were called to do. Don't accuse me of deceiving you. I didn't deceive you. I told you from the get-go what was in front of you. Oh, well, when did you tell me from the get-go? Notice in verse 10, he talks about the woe of his birth. Woe to me, my mother, that you have borne me. All right, keep your ver- uh, finger in chapter 15. Turn back to chapter 1, verse 5. Do we have any other reference to the birth of Jeremiah in this book of his prophecy? Chapter 1, verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, before you were born, I consecrated you. Jeremiah, why are you crying woe that you were born? You were born for this purpose. I consecrated, I did, I elected you, I chose you, I designed you for this. Why are you accusing me of deception? I'm not deceiving you. I told you from the beginning that your birth was by my design. Your mother didn't bring you forth in woe. I brought you forth from your mother in blessing and calling and election. Jeremiah, stop feeling sorry for yourself. Jeremiah, stop looking at your navel. Jeremiah, stop this pity, self-pity. Stop it. He also says in that 10th verse, it is a man of strife and contention. Okay, keeping your finger in that first chapter again, look at verse 19 of chapter 1. What did God tell him? At the beginning, they will fight against you. You will contend against them. You will bring strife into their life because they will fight against you. They will persecute you. They will oppose you. They will whip you, beat you, put you into stocks, throw you into prison. They will try to drown you in muck. They will try to kill you. Your own brothers will try to kill you. I told you from the beginning. They will fight against you. Now here you're moaning about the fact that you're a man of strife and contention. I told you that's what was going to happen to you. Verse 8, chapter 1. Do not be afraid of them. Do not be afraid of them. All right, now skipping down to God's reply in verses 11 to 14. Notice in verse 12 that God mentions iron and bronze. Can anyone smash iron or bronze? Why does God use that image in replying to Jeremiah's complaint there, the woe that his mother brought him forth? Back to chapter 1 again. Notice verse 18 of chapter 1. I have made you as a fortified city, says the Lord. As a pillar of iron and walls of bronze, I have made you. God is drawing attention in Jeremiah 15, verse 12, to the fact that he had already fortified him. What are you whining about, Jeremiah? I made you a fortress of iron and bronze. I told you that from the beginning. 
Now, stand in that fortress. Stand in what I have appointed you to be. I have made you a fortified city. They cannot destroy you. Do not be afraid of them. Jeremiah laments again, verses 15 to 18. In that passage, he says that he ate the words of the Lord. This goes back to chapter 1, verse 9. At his commission, when he was installed in the office of prophet, in the 13th year of the days of King Josiah, the Lord stretched out his hand, Jeremiah 1, 9, and touched his mouth and said, I have put my words in your mouth. Yes, Jeremiah, you ate my words because I put your my words in your mouth. Those were the words you were commissioned to, to carry. Now, why are you charging me with deception? I didn't deceive you. I gave you my word. Proclaim it. Speak it out. Do not be afraid of them. And finally, God's final reply in verses 19 to 21 of the 15th chapter We've, using that phrase in verse 20, a fortified wall of bronze. We've noted that in verse 18 of chapter 1, as we pointed out above in uh, verses 11 to 14. It's the same passage repeated. <clears throat> they will fight against you in verse 20. <clears throat> uh, verse 19 of chapter 1, they will fight against you. We already noted that <clears throat> again. But notice what concludes the whole paradigm. I am with you. Back to chapter 1, verses 8 and 19. When God commissioned him and warned him about what was coming, what did he say to him in verse 8? Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you. Verse 19, they will fight against you, but I am with you. To deliver you. Same word in verse 8. I am with you to deliver you. Verse 8, verse 19 of chapter 1. Now turn to chapter Chapter 15, verse 20 and 21, I am with you and will deliver you. So I will deliver you from the hand of the wicked. It is exactly the same Hebrew word in all four of those passages. What is God doing here in the 15th chapter? He's taking Jeremiah back to the call and the commission and the ordination of the man to the prophetic office. And he's reminding him that he has told him that nothing has happened to him that he did not forewarn him about. And consequently, now that it has come upon him, Jeremiah, go back to your commission. Go back to the way I formed you. Go back to the way I elected elected you and set you apart for this office. Go back to my promise to be your Emmanuel. I will be with you. I told you at the beginning that I would be, and I'm repeating what I told you at the beginning, Jeremiah, now in this uh, despair that you have, in this self-pity that you have, in this discouragement that you have, you're feeling all alone, you're not alone, I am with you. My Emmanuel presence is here to preserve you, to strengthen you, and to cause you to repent for thinking that I have deceived you. I have not deceived you. I have told you that they would fight against you. I have told you that they would despise my word at your lips. I have told you that they would try to kill you. I have told you all of that. I have not deceived you. 
And so the Lord Jesus says, they will hate you because they first hated me. Will you whine and pity yourself when it comes? Honestly, we do not know what we will do. But we are reminded that it has happened before. Even to servants of God so great as Jeremiah who was compared to Christ in Matthew 16. So that we realize that even the greatest of God's servants can be guilty of a pity party. But the Lord has told you, I am with you. Do not Be afraid of them. I will not leave you nor forsake you. I am not a dry wadi. I am a fountain of living waters and I will pour out my streams of refreshing upon you when they persecute you and even when they kill you. Jeremiah, look at the mirror, the mirror of what you're feeling now and the mirror of what I called you to do. Look at yourself, Jeremiah, as you are in chapter 15. Look at yourself in the mirror of chapter 1. That's who you are because Emmanuel made you what you are. Any questions? This dialogue in 15 is extremely important to the narrative development of the prophet's character. It encourages us in the sense that we see a great prophet of God discouraged and even making false accusations against the Lord. And God deals with him firmly, directly, graciously, reminding him that he is his Emmanuel. Scott? I'm wondering, is this language of being a fortified city, not being overcome by enemies, is this a, does, does this appear again in Jeremiah's prophecy about the eschatological city of is there any sense that he's an embodiment? He does not, but I like your suggestion. It's certainly a fruitful line of, uh, of consideration. So when, when, when you've worked it out, come and talk to me about it. Let's close with prayer then. Gracious God, our Emmanuel, with us in every circumstance, in every trial, in every joy. 
how we bless and thank you that through Christ Jesus, the eschatological Emmanuel, we are comforted in a way that Jeremiah could only long for. We find ourselves, nonetheless, Lord, gripped with his own despair and discouragement. We even find ourselves shaking our fist at heaven from time to time and crying out, Forgive us, O Lord. Even as you called Jeremiah to repent and turn, so we would turn from any accusations of injustice against you. You are holy, righteous, and good. In Christ, you have demonstrated your great affection for us in his life, death, and resurrection. You have privileged us to be seated in heavenly places in him. O Lord, refresh us. Be to us streams of living water, thirsty souls that we are. Take away our fear and our sense that we are somehow suffering unjustly. Lord, help us to bear even unrighteousness for Christ's sake. And, O Lord, we will praise you along with Jeremiah, remembering that you have chosen us as you chose him, and you have set us apart to be your humble servants. We who are your sons and daughters, Love the sweetness of your word, because we love the sweetness of Emmanuel, who is the heart and soul of your word and of our lives. We pray these things with thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.